Hey, mom friend, do you know where you're having your baby? Are you feeling like some of the options that are available to you might not be the right fit? Maybe you do know where you're having your baby, but you want to learn a little bit more about it and what you should expect. In today's episode and the few upcoming episodes, we will be talking about birth environments. No matter what options you have for your birth environment, or in other words, where you decide to have your baby, has the ability to make or break your birth experience because it's all about where you feel comfortable and safe. I will be sharing what each option can offer you, what are things to look for in choosing a birth environment, what are things you should know about each one, and depending on what you choose, how you can prepare yourself. This might clear up any misconceptions you have heard and bring things into the light. And to kick things off today, we will specifically be talking about hospital births. To discover and know how to choose a birth environment that best fits your needs and your desires for your upcoming birth, get on a personalized one-on-one coaching session with me. Here we will go over all the birth options dive deep into your questions and concerns, and weigh out all the possibilities that are available to you so you can make the best out of your birth no matter what option you choose. Then follow that up with a childbirth education course to get you ready for childbirth, and bam, sister, you're all set. (laughs) To book this one-on-one coaching session and any other childbirth education courses, you can email me at cbecoaching at simplifybirthandmotherhood.com or simply go to my website that is linked in this description of this episode and sign up today. With all of that, I will see you inside. Hey mama, welcome to Simplify Birth and Motherhood. I am Amanda. I am a wife and mom of four. I have had a hospital birth, unexpected c-section a few home births and now i'm a birth advocate childbirth educator and your cheerleader in the toughest hood of them all motherhood do you wish you knew what options were available to you when becoming a new mom or adding more to the mix are you ready to nurture and build up your mom gut so you can be more confident educated and bold in this podcast you will begin to understand find support and turn knowledge into power through education and resources for pregnancy, childbirth, postpartum, and for the early years of motherhood. If you are ready to get clarity to empower your birth and motherhood journey, then throw up your unbrushed hair, hike up your high-waisted pants, because sister, (laughs) I know you are wearing them. Put the baby in the ergo, and let's start feeding our God-given mom guts. See you inside. Okay. All right. So we're just going to jump right to it. So when we are choosing birth environments, there are three options that are available where most people can have a baby. And those three options are the hospital, which is what we will be talking about today, birth center, and a home birth. We will talk about birth centers and home births in an upcoming episode here in a couple weeks. And today... Like I said, we will be focusing more on hospital births. Although there are three options out there for you and for other mamas, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are available to everyone. And I'll explain why here in a minute. (laughs) Where you have your baby can be based on your past and current health history, state and local regulations, possible insurance coverage, and how much you are wanting to pay out of pocket. I say how much you want to pay out of pocket because sometimes 
your insurance deductible is just as much as you would pay out of pocket for an out of network provider. Some of these birth environments are considered out of network, but as the times have been changing, some of them are considered in network. So you don't necessarily have to worry about that. And sometimes in these out of network providers, it's just as much as you would pay for the deductible. So that also plays a part into it as well. And when that happens, sometimes you can seek a reimbursement from your insurance company. But I will know that that varies from insurance to insurance and whether or not they will honor that. So just keep that in mind. Another thing that I want you to keep in mind in choosing a birth environment for yourself is no matter what birth option you choose, you do not have a guarantee that your perfectly planned birth will happen. So it doesn't matter if you have a hospital birth, a home birth, doesn't matter. There's not always a guarantee that things are going to go according to plan. And this is just because we're not really, in essence, in complete control of birth. We're just not. And it's not just about our journey. It's also about our baby's journey. That's somebody else that too, they're having their own journey. And sometimes our baby's journey looks a lot different than what we essentially have planned for them. I mean, that's kind of like motherhood in general. Sometimes we plan and want our kids to do stuff, but then it totally does not go according to our plan because essentially we're not really in control. So we can only really plan for what we really want when it comes to birth environments, but that does not mean that it's going to be a guarantee that it will go according to how we envisioned it or how we planned. It's good to work towards that, but still not a guarantee. No matter what option is available to you for choosing, here are a few things to keep in mind. First, ask yourself, what is your own birth philosophy? We learned about this in episode two. If you do not know what that means or how to even come up with them, go listen to that episode and you'll be able to get an idea of what I'm talking about here. And based on what you come up with or what your own birth philosophy is, you'll be able to know what type of birth experience you want to have, which also too will act as a compass on what environment you will most likely choose or what might be a best fit. Another thing you're going to want to consider is atmosphere in visiting these places or even just the idea of having your baby in these different environments. Do you feel comfortable and safe? Do you feel a sense of, okay, I'm okay with that? Or yeah, that would actually feel so much better to me than doing it in this environment. So number three, also consider the attitude. So OBs are not the only thing that can make or break your experience. I mean, they're really not the ones who are caring for you during your entire labor. They're there for you during your prenatal period because you go see them, you talk to them, those types of things. But really (laughs) how it is, is they meet you at the rendezvous (laughs) when the time comes or when you are close to pushing. So they actually won't be there the entire time. And sometimes your doctor might not even be available or might not even be considered as the on-call doctor. So just keep that in mind too, that your doctor might be there, but then they also, there's a chance that they probably won't be there and there might be another doctor there. So you need to consider the nursing staff. I mean, these are really the people who are taking care of you the entire time that you are going through labor in the hospital. And you need to also consider 
too, the midwife. Do you vibe with this midwife? Is this something that her values and her expertise, her experience, are all those things, do they vibe with you? Are they on the level that you're at? And it might take a few midwives to go through to interview them for you to understand where they stand, what their view is about this particular topic and things like that. So that might take some time. But in regards to hospital birth, this is why that TikTok video of those nurses saying they're icks when it comes to providing care for some of their patients in the labor and delivery. This is why it was such a big deal when they did it. It's because the attitude and the philosophy of the staff really determine what type of care they're going to provide for you as you are staying there and as you are having your baby. And lastly, support and expertise. What you choose should be based on the help, care, skill, and knowledge you want you and your baby to be given during your pregnancy, birth, and shortly after postpartum. It does not, again, matter if you are choosing a hospital birth, a home birth, a birth center birth. All of these things need to be considered when you're choosing those environments. So since today we are talking about our first environment is a hospital. Let's go back a little bit in history and figure out how this all started because it had to start from somewhere. So in the 1900s, only about 10% of births were happening in the hospital, which means the rest of the 90% were happening at home. This was due to finances. It was only for the well-off women to receive physician care. So if you were poor, this was not an option for you. And somehow today that seems like the opposite, which is strange, but kind of comical at the same time. Another one is economical changes, but also sanitary reasons. So, so having a baby in the hospital was a lot more cleaner, safer, and due to urban overcrowding, it just made home environments very unsanitary and with the industrialized revolution combined together just did not provide a good, healthy environment to continue to have babies inside the home. But if you were poor, you really had no option, like I said. In about 1921 to 1930, there was a decline in births due to the Great Depression And if there were births, they were still done through a midwife, so still done at home and things like that. It wasn't until about 1930, midwives practically disappeared. This was due to immigration restrictions because most midwives and home births that were happening were done by mothers in communities and often spoke native languages of these other immigrants who were having babies in these communities. Another reason is they were being viewed as not practicing medicine. This left midwives to have no voice or be advocated for to continue the trend. From that point on, so 1930s to about 1939, births in the hospital were happening at a rate of 50% and was becoming increasingly more popular due to what was being offered to women and the fact that it was appealing to them. This, again, was through a lot of propaganda and things like that. It wasn't until 1950 that 90% of births were happening in the hospital due to improved public health, nutrition, and sanitation. Now up to present day, this would include pre-COVID. This is the most chosen option in the U.S. and Canada. We saw during COVID, we saw an uprising of home births and birth center births. Those actually got more popular during this time, but even still today, hospitals still consider the most popular option for women to have babies. 
So some hospitals are rated by a level of one and four in which they provide care and expertise that they can offer their patients, where level one is for low-risk pregnancies and they offer basic care. Level two can offer the same services as a level one and are for moderate to high-risk pregnancies. They also have NICUs, anesthesiologists, and things like that readily available, and it's more of like a good balance between basic but not also intensive care facilities. Level three are for more complex pregnancies, obstetric complications, and fetal conditions. This is where they have ICUs and can actually perform radiology. Level four is for the most complex maternal conditions in critically ill pregnant women and babies through pregnancy, birth, and postpartum. All of these levels, we will see staff that is qualified for that specific level of care. And if there is a need for mom or baby to receive more care that they cannot offer, they are normally transferred to these other specialty facilities to receive that care. And we see oftentimes level one and level two hospitals in most areas, which provide a good balance for a lot of families. For example, in my current area, the local hospital here does not have a NICU, but the next hospital that's within a 30 mile radius or 30 minute radius per se has that option available. So for me and my family, if there is an absolute emergency, we go to the nearest hospital. But if we can have a little bit more time, then we would probably go to something that is a level two, level three hospital, which is really not that far away from us. Whereas we see these level three and fours in bigger cities and they're not offered in every city. So that's basically what the levels are of care that each hospital is rated on, that they can provide services to families and their patients. So who would choose a hospital setting? Well, like I said, people who have insurance that maybe only cover hospital births, that could be their only option if they want to stay within their insurance and not pay out of pocket, but also contribute to their deductible. Or maybe they have some type of insurance that only allows them to have a hospital birth where their providers and what is covered is only at their local hospital. This would include anybody who's on any federal insurance, state insurance like Medicaid, Medi-Cal, those types of things. A lot of first-time moms choose this option because they just don't know what to expect, but also a lot of experienced moms choose this option because they've had a traumatic birth before, or maybe their child shortly after they were born had to go to ICU. Sometimes most women choose this option for multiple reasons, which can include, again, health reasons, the only care facility with practitioners that can care for their pregnancy and their specific needs, like they have breast cancer or any type of other cancer, or maybe they have other disabilities, those types of things, or maybe there's something about their current pregnancy that requires a specialty care that would deem them as an out-of-care patient in, say, a birth center birth or a midwife, such as preeclampsia, those types of things. Or maybe it's based on the fact that there are no birth centers in their areas or there are no midwives. There are some states in America where practicing midwifery outside of the hospital is illegal. So with no birth centers in their area, because they are few and far between, and we'll learn about that here in a couple weeks, and with midwifery still being an outlaw, they really just don't have any other option or just convenience. You know, it's close. It's the closest place and 
they feel okay with that. Another thing that why moms choose the hospital is like we had learned in the 1950s, what they appeal to us. What are some of the things that they offer to us that make it very appealing and make us feel safe and comfortable with this decision? And some of those services are ICUs, NICUs, 24-hour staff, labs, specialized support, blood banks, and pharmaceutical medicine. So those are the things that are very appealing because if something does happen, we are just right there in that facility and we can get the care that we need. Or something happens to our baby shortly after, or there was a complication during our labor that caused baby to have some type of other complications. The staff and everything like that is readily available. Why we would choose this option too is based on our own birth philosophy. Maybe mentally we think that having a baby is a medical emergency or does require medical assistance. But having this belief sometimes, and even just the mentality of, well, I just want to make sure that we have everything that we need if something were to happen, ends up becoming kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy because of all the things that are so easily accessible, which means that because it's there, there is a chance that we either might feel pressure to do it or something that is and can be necessary can surely become something that is truly unnecessary if that makes sense. (laughs) The three P's that you should know before going into Labor Day into the hospital is one, personnel, so staff. Learning about nursing staff and their qualifications, such as knowing if there are OBGYNs, which are actually considered surgeons, but are there midwives? Will there be one or more nurses attending your birth during your stay? If so, how many of them and how many of those are considered residency nurses or nurses who are more experience, have a little bit more years on them. Do their birth philosophies align with yours in regards to birth, breastfeeding, etc.? Number two is places. So take a tour of your hospital that you're considering. Go look at their rooms, their birth rooms, their recovery rooms. Are they private or will they be shared? Figure out what your insurance is going to cover in regards to your place that you're going to be in in the hospital. And what is offered in each of them? Do they have showers? Do they have birth balls? Do they have sinks? Do they have microwaves? Do they have TVs? What do they offer in these situations? You need to also know where the ER is and where you will be entering in the day of labor, whether you are induced or because you went into labor on your own and now it's time to go to the hospital. Where the nursery rooms are at, NICUs, vending machines. (laughs) I mean, if we're wanting to be hydrated or want a little snack or maybe our birth partner wants to get a little bit more electrolytes or snacks, vending machines, cafeterias, um, as well as what is available for your birth partner or spouse as they are staying with you, especially in the recovery room. (laughs) Do they offer extra pillows and blankets? Where they're going to be able to sleep? Is it going to be big enough for them or is it comfortable? What can they offer your birth partners? Especially their options as far as what they are going to eat and how they're going to take care of themselves as they're staying with you in your recovery. Lastly, policies. Every hospital has a policy and code of ethics that they function by. I say this with air quotes because they do tend to violate these pretty often, but you're going to want to know what those are and whether or not 
which ones are routine or what they do in a routine and what they do and can do in an emergency. What the restrictions are for people at your birth, during your birth, and what you can and can't do in your recovery and birth. So it would be good to know what those are so that way you know how to work around them if need be. So this will give you an idea of what it is like and if this place makes you feel comfortable and safe, this is going to be a good option for you. There are some things to expect and to realize is reality in this environment, such as things are going to be way more medicalized in this environment as opposed to birth center and home birth, meaning you're going to see things like things that are not necessary and things that are unnecessary for your birth. This would include epidural, pitocin, IVs, frequent vaginal exams, artificial rupture of membranes, and easy access to surgery. So that means an easy access to cesareans. They will respect and honor your requests within their bounds. So you can still have requests. You can still have desires. There are some things that you can have your birth, but they are also going to stay within the guidelines and restrictions of their policy. So if you are requesting something that is making them go against that, you're going to get a little bit more of a pushback and it's going to be a little bit harder to fight for. So just be aware of that as well as education. So they do provide education and it actually is a part of their ACOG code of ethics in guidelines, but the education is going to be more in favor of the hospital procedures and routine care. They're probably not going to provide you with education and things like that that makes them and their care look less appealing. Is that ethical? No, but do they do it? Yes. But ACOG says that meaning the ethical obligations of informed consent requires that an obstetrician gynecologist gives the patient adequate, accurate, and understandable information and requires that the patient has the ability to understand and reason through this information and is free to ask questions and to make an intentional and voluntary choice, which may include refusal of care or treatment. So this means that your decision and the goal of them providing you this information needs to come from a place of understanding from you. They are not, quote, childbirth educators, and to them, their main concern is not necessarily educating you. It is making sure that you and your baby are on a healthy track and the well-being of you and baby is still going consistently well. So that is what they're main focus is. So they will provide education, but it's not going to be very thorough. It's probably not going to make them look bad. And as well as it's not going to give you any other insight as what the alternatives are. Another thing that is huge and what I think a lot of moms going into this type of situation don't realize is that you are actually going to be on a time clock. This has something to do with what they call the Friedman curve, and we will discuss that another time. <laughs> this is why laboring at home as much as you can or up to a certain point is recommended even by the nursing staff because the time starts clicking once you step foot into that hospital. This is even more so if you're induced. The moment that you get the Pitocin, 
or the cervical ripening agent, that clock is set. And they want you progressing at a rate that they want you to, not the way that your body is wanting to or is or the way that we know through science and through experience and through the multiple historical statistical (laughs) reasoning of at which women progress and dilate. It also varies from person to person, but not at that rate. They want you progressing at the rate that they want you to. And the idea of a cesarean will be pressed harder if labor goes over a certain amount of hours. So it's not like these other environments, birth center and home birth, where they don't have such a strict timeline. They do have a timeline, but it is within reason and is within keeping mom and baby safe and not exhausting mom or getting to a point where we are seeing three sun ups and sundowns with little to no progression. There is a reason why they have that and it's for mom and baby's sake. But in the hospital, that time is shrunk down significantly. So the moment you step into that hospital, you are on that timeline. Keep that in mind, meaning try to labor at home as much as you can and only go in when you are in active labor. Okay, and you'll know the signs and symptoms of that when you go through my childbirth education class. So not even just by timing or by duration, you will know other behavioral signs, feelings, those type of things when it comes to active labor. Like I said, you learn that all in my class. To your OBGYN and to the hospital staff, they are considered the experts, which really I don't blame them. I mean, they go to school, they literally get taught and told that they are the experts and they're trained to be those problem solvers, not you. And with that belief, it means that they will not allow you to postpone a treatment or a decision because they view you as not the expert. To them, they are, and they are the only ones who ultimately really know. And I don't think that this will change, but I hope so. I hope one day that this dynamic between patient and obstetrician and patient credibility on how much they know would be more welcomed and taken into consideration when it comes to... So I hope that this changes, but... I don't think that this is going to change unless there can be an aware information that it's not just limited to them. These are things that that we can learn as the patient. We can learn about different risks and benefits and different medical procedures and what cases this could be used and what is considered an emergency and what isn't. What are the signs of our baby not handling this or our baby needing this and our baby needing that? And to be our own problem solvers in these situations. This really is an individual thing that people have to pursue. So I think in order for it to change and to look different, we as individual people need to have a hunger and a thirst for that knowledge and for those things in order to be able to accomplish that. And there are people out there. I mean, you're one of them. That's why you're here today. I'm one of them. That's why I'm here today. As we begin to prepare ourselves for this birth environment, the first thing that we need to do is we need to educate ourselves. Does the hospital do this? They might. They might provide childbirth education classes, but we learned also in episode two that they are going to teach you how to have a baby in their environment. So meaning based on their procedures, 
based on their routines, those types of things. But will they provide you other education material in its entirety, even if it makes their option a little bit more unsafe than maybe other birth options? Probably not. (laughs) I mean, I don't think anybody's going to give out information that makes them look bad, but you know, unless you have full transparency, but I don't think in this situation they do offer full transparency most of the time to their patients. That's the risk that we take in choosing this option. But aside from that, this is why it is so important on your part that you educate yourself on your options. What is most likely you're going to see in this environment, the benefits, the risks, the alternatives, and what you can say no to or hold off on based on your current situation. Because that type of basic information is out there. I mean, you'll hear that on this podcast where we will bring things into the light that was and is being held in the dark. You can read research, statistics, and all of that is public knowledge. It has been made public. These are things that we can do on our part to be able to do that. You can know your own hospital policies that should be available on their websites, your own patient bill of rights, whether it's on a national level or a local level or state level. Doing this will keep you informed on decisions you might need to make during your pregnancy, birth, and in recovery. And this is not to be all-knowing and trying to play God or to be a difficult patient patient in this birth environment, but it's to not credit or discredit what you know. It gives you the active participation in your birth and the authority to know what is best for you and your family. Education gives us wisdom on information that is based on facts and truths that is presented before us, whether it is new or old. This is why I always say, knowledge is power because it really does give you the power to walk in a path that you can clearly see. It brings light to your path. It helps. It's your compass. It keeps you going. It gives you authority. It gives you confidence. There's so much power in knowledge and how we get knowledge is through educating ourselves. The next thing you should do to prepare yourself is to know your rights. Because again, according to ACOG, pregnancy is not an exception to the principle that a decisional capable patient has the right to refuse treatment, even treatment needed to maintain life. Therefore, a decisionally capable pregnant woman's decision to refuse recommended medical or surgical interventions should be respected. And the use of coercion is not only ethically impermissible, but also medically inadvisable because of the realities of prognosis, uncertainty, and the limitations of medical knowledge, such as it is never acceptable for OBGYNs to attempt to influence patients towards a clinical decision using coercion. OBGYNs are discouraged in the strongest possible terms from the use of duress, manipulation, coercion, physical force, or threats, this would include CPS or the courts, to motivate women towards a specific clinical decision. That is part of your right. 
that is part of something that they are not allowed to do and a right for you to have care in regards to those ethical guidelines. A few other of your rights are every woman and infant has the right to receive care that is consistent with current scientific evidence. So that means evidence-based research. Every woman has a right to choose a midwife or a physician. Every woman has a right to choose her birth setting from the full range of safe options available in her community on the basis of complete objective information about benefits, risks, and costs of these options. Every woman has a right to accept or refuse procedures, drugs, tests, and treatments, and to have her choices honored. She has a right to change her mind. So she has a right to, if she doesn't want to do it, but then later decides that she wants to, she has the right to do that. But also she has a right for a second opinion. You also have a right to information about the professional identity and qualifications of those involved with your care and to know when those involved are trainees. You have a right to full and clear information about benefits, risks, and costs of procedures, drugs, testings, and treatments offered to you and of all reasonable options, including no interventions meaning you should be able to receive this information about all interventions that are likely to be offered during labor and birth well before your labor starts. So those are the things that you have rights to. It is not a complete list of some of your rights, but that is a few. So it's important to know those things. Get educated on those things. So know your rights before going into the situation. And based on that, based on knowing what our rights are and me going through some of those for you, you have the right to ask questions and for a second opinion. Staying informed in your decisions may require you to ask some tough questions. It's going to take time, but it also requires courage and confidence because it's like when a kid keeps asking you why, like, why, mom? Why? Why? Well, why this? Well, why that? You want them to ask questions because you want them to understand. And so the same thing goes in here. Ask questions because I want you to understand what is happening. I want you to understand why they are doing this. I want you to understand the short term as well as the long term of these decisions or of these different procedures or testings or labs or anything involved in your care. I want you to know that. And that's going to require you to ask some questions. It might rustle some feathers. It might make you seem as not compliant, but again, that's not the goal here is for you to be compliant. And sometimes when patients ask questions, they're viewed as not being compliant, but more combative. We don't want to be combative, but then we also don't want to be compliant. So we need to find a little bit of a balance, but asking questions is not a bad thing. (laughs) And so during your care, you're going to be asked a lot of questions as a patient and that will require you oftentimes your signature. And even ACOG says that a signed consent document, however, does not guarantee that the patient's values and priorities have been taken in consideration in a meaningful way that the ethical requirements of informed consent have been met. They also state that shared decision-making is a patient-centered, individualized approach 
to the informed consent process that involves discussion of the benefits and risks of available treatment options in the context of a patient's values and priorities. And like I had stated before, along these same lines, you have to be able to understand it. And in order to be able to understand things sometimes is we need to ask questions. We need to ask more than one questions. And like I said, if they're going to require your signature, you should have the ability to know what you're signing for and not just sign along the dotted line and then realize later that you kind of ended up signing your life away in a sense. (laughs) So you can ask questions if you're not completely clear or If you don't fully agree with it at first and you just need a little bit more understanding in order to get to that place, you have a right to know that and you have a right to know what your options are and what will the short-term and long-term effects will be in receiving that treatment and also how they will be performed. So be skeptical. Ask all the questions. You want evidence? That's okay. Ask for it. Go looking for it. This is not just medically speaking, but ask yourself what is important to you and to your family. Take some time before labor starts in the preparation process to communicate between you and your birth partner and figure out what are the things that you guys would like in this situation. What are some of the things that are non-negotiables, things that you definitely don't want, or what you want for your baby. What are some of the things and the procedures that you guys want to do for baby after the fact? And make sure that that communication is there because if there comes a point during your labor in this situation where your partner, your spouse needs to speak up for you, they know what your wishes are. They know what you want. They know what they would like to see happen in this situation based off of what you've communicated to them. So this communication needs to happen. But medically speaking, this too, all these things don't just apply to a hospital birth. These are all the same rights and the same things that you need to ask going into these birth center births, home births, all the things that you can ask midwives, anything like that. These are all still things that to keep in mind and to know that you have a right for in regards to those as well. So not just for hospital birth. And the last two are more on the lighthearted side, which is bring some personal items, something to bring comfort and make it feel more homey because hospital rooms tend to be a little stale. They tend to be a little bit bright. They sometimes have a funny little smell. <laughs> And sometimes they can feel icky, even though they are considered more sanitary, quote, sanitary. But you do got all kinds of different germs from other people who have been there. You are staying on a bed that somebody else had been stayed on. You have, you're wearing a gown that somebody else has worn, even though it's been washed before you've used it. I mean, there's just those type of things. And, you know, we want to sometimes make those environments feel more homey, especially if they are our only option, which you can. So bringing like pillows, blankets, just favorite items, personal items, like instead of wearing their hospital gown, maybe get something that you feel a little bit more comfortable in, things like that, things to kind of uh, sterilize (laughs) the room. So oil diffusers, those types of things. So you can also bring those as well. And then lastly, always stay 
with the baby. If mother and baby need to be separated at any point and mom cannot go with baby, make sure baby is always with the birth partner or your spouse. Make sure that baby is never left alone. Obviously, we don't want mom to be left alone, but birth partners cannot be in two places at one time. So the main priority is that you stay with baby or very close in proximity to baby and that if anything is going to be done on baby that you have given consent to, which means that you are understanding of why they are doing it and you understand the benefits, the risks, as well as the alternatives and as well as that you do have a right to get a second opinion. And sometimes some of those things are not necessary. So knowing what those are beforehand, so you can determine whether or not the treatment that your baby is getting is something that you are comfortable with and something that you are giving them consent to do. Well, mama, I hope you learned a little bit about having a hospital birth. Of course, I can sit here and talk your ear off because believe me, there is so much to say about this particular birth environment. But that is it for today and we will chat in our next episode where you will learn about our next birth environment option. Until next time. Hi again. Thank you so much for listening to this great episode. If you had learned something today, please make sure you leave a review in Apple Podcasts and share with another mom friend. Also, pop on over to our private Facebook group, sign up for our email list, and connect with me on social media, which are all linked in the description of this podcast. I can't wait to see you over there and connect with you. Now go listen to your mom gut, because wisdom will guide you, and chances are it won't let you down. Until next time, cheers! Cheers!